Welcome to the Stargate Archives, buried deep within Cheyenne Mountain. Welcome to the latest episode from the Stargate Archive. I'm all by myself again, so the episode is going to be a little bit shorter, even though this is the season one finale within the Serpent's Grasp, following on from last week's politics and part of a trilogy of stories. Now, the story concept was by James Crocker, written by Jonathan Glasner, one of the show's creators, and directed by David Weary Smith. This episode got its premiere in America on March 6th, 1998, and we got it over here in the UK August 26th, 1998. No messing about, we're going to jump straight in. Are we all ready? You know me. Always willing to help those who need help. The episode opens up with the lion, and then we see a bus departing Cheyenne Mountain. Nice establishing shot. We put into a shredder some SGC documents being... Well, disposed of by General Hammond, obviously part of the base decommissioning, the shutting down of the Stargate, as imposed by Senator Kinsey. And Jack appears at the doorway. Interesting that Hammond goes on about how much paperwork is required to shut down the facility, and that he was only a month away from retirement anyway. I always thought that the idea was that he was given this last mission, his last job, to shut down Stargate Command anyway, and then he was going to retire, so... Nothing much has changed. It's been a, a year of supervising SG-1. I'd say tearing his hair out, but, well, there you go. Jack, of course, points out that they know what's going to happen. They know the threat is out there. This is not just words on a piece of paper to them. So why are they going to follow the orders? That's the question. Over my riding corpse, sir. They are lawful orders. You are a loyal officer, but you know that these orders could result in the destruction of all life on Earth. What is your obligation then? Gee, sir, I don't know what to say. I mean, is Jack just testing the water here? Is he preparing right now to do something that would get him thrown in Leavenworth and when he succeeds? If he lives, of course. Well, yeah, we know what's going to happen. Indeed. We then cut to Daniel looking at the Stargate, which is once again draped in its cloth cover. I wonder if the iris is closed, because... While the gate is able to activate, you can't really mothball it, can you? If you'd been listening, you'd know that Nintendo's passed through everything. When you look around, you can see even the chairs have got drapes and covers over them. The place has been mothballed, but the gate is still physically there. Why else have that cover over it? If the gate is there, then it's active. What are the odds that anybody could dial in right now? It's exactly what I said. Granted, Daniel isn't having much luck to convince Jack that those coordinates are valid, but Jack has got to do something. This is the time that a decision has got to be made, no matter the consequences. Hi-ho, hi-ho. Back to work. He's just convincing the rest of SG-1 that Daniel is right. The anguish, the discussion goes round and round in circles. Daniel points out, how will you feel if the Gawal do come and you did nothing? Well, yeah, Jack pretty much sums it up. He'd feel stupid. Haven't you guys ever heard the story of the dog and the dancing monkeys? has something to do with getting along and dancing. He decides to go, Tilk, he's, he's up for it. Daniel, yeah, Daisy's definitely going. 
they imply that Carter has a little hesitancy, that she has argued the case of the threat to their careers, but ultimately she doesn't hesitate either. No more beer for you. And the gate is dialed. The alarms throughout the base ring. We see soldiers running down corridors. General Hammond and Major Ferretti are walking towards the gate room. Nice to see Ferretti again from uh, Children of the Gods, played by Brent State. He also doubles for Michael in an episode of Atlantis. Probably better known for playing the alien Red Ban in Andromeda. The general seems a little upset when his keycard doesn't work either. <laughs> Interesting that SG-1 managed to get a malp into the gate room. They're not the smallest of vehicles to tunnel around the base. What did they say? Oh, we're just taking it for cleaning. <laughs> or put it on Craigslist or eBay or something like that. Anyhow, they send them out, it bounces back a signal, but the room it's in is pitch black. They switch to infrared and see evidence of a DHD and some Egyptian-style items. Interesting touch with the music. They didn't go all out for the gold music, but it's definitely hints of the original Egyptian cues. And all dolled up in their black gear, they run through the gate, with General Hammond and Ferretti and some of the men not too far behind. Although the general doesn't really uh, take any steps to stop him. Well, I was planning to retire, but man, is that overrated. We return from the credits with SG-1 equipped with night vision goggles. Always a nice effect, whether it's in the TV or the movies. The director makes a lot of use of the environment. Not a lot of dialogue at the moment, just visuals and a little bit of music as the camera pans around. We see Apophis' symbol on some of the shipping crates. Exactly what they're shipping, we don't know yet. Daniel is dialing SGC to send them out back, which is rather good of them. <laughs> I suppose they've got to get rid of it, but I'm not sure I'd want to dial back and get, <laughs> get a chance of the general telling you off and being very disappointed in you. Last chance. Tilk opens up one of the shipping crates. Seems overly complicated. I'm not sure there's any reason for motorised hatches to be built into something that small. What's in it for us? Although I suppose, since it's carrying weaponry, it might be some sort of locking mechanism as well. See, staff weapons and... Shotgun. As we know them, Zat guns. But of course, this is the first time they've uh, encountered this sort of weapon. Till to uh, explain their use and their name. Zat Nicotel. Jack is having none of that. It's a Zat gun. Always be and forever be a Zat gun. Shoot once, pain, shoot twice, death, shoot three times, disintegration until the writers decide that. Nah, way too complicated. In the background, we hear a humming getting louder and louder, and then <laughs> they notice it. What can that be? Well, we know what that's going to be, don't we? That's creepy. Always amused me that Tilk didn't seem to know what that was. I am sure he's been on ships that entered hyperspace before and obviously you're familiar with the build-up of energy required to do the jump into hyperspace or to generate the hyperspace point. I'm not sure why there's that huge amount of inertia. Granted, there's artificial gravity, structural integrity fields and all that built into the ship, but it's still a little, a little amusing that Jack and Sam go flying and Tilt just rocks. I think he knew what was going to happen, and he played them. He played them good. Indeed. As they try to dial the gate, it's dead. It's not. It's just sitting there, not making a connection. Again, it makes me wonder how quickly that tilt figured out they were not on a planet. 
it takes the rest of SG-1 a lot longer to grasp that fact. Although there's no real reason for them to assume that they're on a ship at this point, until it moved. As they look around, a little perplexed, the bay doors start to open. Like rats, they scatter into the four corners, finding places to hide. Which again, I think, is one of the reasons why the Gwold and their Jafar always lose to Earth forces. There may be all sorts of electronics built into the armoured helmets that they wear, but visibility and angle of depth of perception and all that can't be too good, because they should have spotted SG-1, but they didn't. They walked right past them. Clink, clink, clunk, clink, clunk, clink, in the usual manner. But we do get a surprise. A giant Malteser rises from one of the packing crates and floats towards the Stargate. Real sci-fi this, isn't it? <laughs> The globe hovers in the middle of the Stargate, and the Jafar guard turn and walk out. Convenient, that. Daniel wants to know what it is, Till informs them that it's some sort of long-range visual communications device. He compares it to uh, television. I'm not quite sure about that, unless it is one way. Something we'll have to discuss a bit later. But then we get the comment about Showtime, and this has been covered many times, that as the series originally was broadcast and paid for by Showtime that's the reference in but when it went into syndication and repeats it got changed the reference of Showtime works a lot better as luck would have it Tilk now knows how to get out of the room thanks to the guards and they venture forth into the structure which is conveniently built with many hiding places for when Jafar patrol always helps when the guards clunk clink all over the place Gives you plenty of warning to hide. I know it's silly, but it keeps the story going, I guess. We jump back to the SGC, where Walter and Ferretti go into the General's office, confirm that it was SG-1 that dialed the gate and jumped through to the coordinates where Daniel believes the attack on Earth is going to originate. Ferretti wants to take SG-2 and provide backup, but as the General says, at this point, all they would be doing is bringing them back for court-martial. He doesn't totally block the idea that SG-2 could be of some use. As he says, he takes it under advisement. So team are going to be ready to go, the military. They are going to be prepared no matter what is required of them. I think the general is hedging his bets a bit. He would be foolish not to. And then we jump back to SG-1. Still in the dark, still crawling around some sort of structure, which we know to be a ship. But at this point, they don't know yet. Oh dear, they'll figure it out. Looking back to the first season, it is strange seeing them with MP5s instead of P90s. That weapon became so linked to Stargate. I also always liked the idea that Tilt kept his staff weapon. That's a weapon he was born to. That's a weapon he was always trained upon. Even though I'm pretty sure he can use any of the armaments the SGC provide him with. That give him that ridiculously long weapon for close quarter combat. He's happy. <laughs> now this is a bit of a puzzle. They walk into an open chamber, unguarded chamber, and there's a sarcophagus. Now why would... I don't understand why it wasn't locked or unguarded. This is a very important piece of technology to the world. Just as important as a Stargate. Agreed. Seems a little bizarre, even for allowing the plot to continue. I'll have to point out, though, I 
do love all the wall decorations. Granted, they're just pressed plastic, sprayed to make them look a little metallic, but every wall is covered in hieroglyphics. It looks fantastic. And it's at this point that Jack notices that Tilk is still preoccupied. He seems to be staring off into the distance. Sam next to him has also got a glazed look on her face. At this point, they realise that they're on a ship in hyperspace. The game has changed. Right! Aren't you the least bit curious about what's out there? Well, I'm just hoping we find some new meat for the team. Preferably something bald, mysterious. You know, the warrior type with lots of, you know, muscles. We jump back to the SGC. The gate is dialing. There's a malt ready to go and a room full of marines. SG-2 looks a more enhanced combat unit. The general is sending them, technically to bring them back for court-martial, but wink wink, support them if you can. Best scenario, just get them back, safe and sound. Unfortunately, the gate does not lock, the seventh symbol does not work, because of course the gate has moved. You need an extension or something. And we get an external shot of the Hattack, it's one of the big gold motherships flying through hyperspace. This is not a cargo ship. This is a warship. Guess where it's going. And this is another puzzle. Not only have they gained access to the sarcophagus, but this looks like maybe an auxiliary bridge. There is a control panel. Granted, it might not be the helm, but I think it is. Jack seems a little put off with Tilk, not being able to identify the fact that they're on a ship straight away. And I cannot believe that Tilk has not been on a Hattack before. But I'll give him the slight benefit of the doubt because he says they don't normally have Stargate. So if he's thinking that this is a different design of a ship, one built to house a Stargate, then perhaps he's not thinking it's a standard Hattack vessel. This is one of the problems when you look back at the first season of any show you're very familiar with. You will spot things that you let go first, second, third time around. But that's not a bad thing. There isn't a show out there that can survive close inspection from somebody who knows the show reasonably well. While SG-1 are busy doing their own thing, they get jumped by a guard who has a zap gun pointed at Jack. And instead of firing straight away, he gives Jack the chance to duck and cover. The guard gets hit by one blast, he gets hit by a second blast, and then the third, and his body disintegrates, vanishes. This is where Jack actually learns about the third strike rule. It's a nice idea, but there are so many issues with it. The very fact that he got killed by a third strike from a different weapon, that is a big warning line. It was a very sensible decision to get rid of the Zat's three strike rule. But now what do they do? They're stuck on a ship in hyperspace, going God knows where, although educated decision is Earth. How long will it get there? They've no idea. The guard, for some reason, didn't sound an alarm, so they've got a little time to think about this before a horde of Jaffa come raining down on them. Let's see what they do. I have read of a place where humans do battle in a ring of jello. Sam seems surprised that the ship is going faster than light, but I've always considered that a given on any spacefaring race. Sublight velocities are just not practical. Not practical at all, especially in storytelling science fiction. Tilt seems to be presenting the idea that this is new technology. Again, doesn't quite match what we know. He's only rated to fire Death Glider. Okay, yeah. The first prime of a system lord may not be trained in the dedicated art of flying a major warship. That makes sense. But he would have been on one. Would have been on a ship 
Tilk has led armies against other system lords. They didn't travel light years to different planets sublight, so he's been on an FTL-capable ship before. He's been through Stargates before. It's great if you can always gate to your combat zone, but that's never, not always going to be the case. Anyhow, let's carry on. Because after all, sarcophagus are really left unguarded. Just long enough for the main cast to let the plot advance. SG-1, once again, hide within the design features of the main corridors of the attack as the Jafar guards slowly approach. They pass by without noticing this invading force. And then we see a huge landing area, landing bay, full of death gliders, all being worked on. Actually a nice little CGI green screen effect, maybe a matte extension. They leap to the conclusion that this is a warship, it's on its way to Earth, an invasion is being planned. Carter asks Tilk how fast one of these ships go. Tilk mentions Hatak, so he recognises the ship now. That makes a little bit of sense. If he's flown off the uh, landing bay of a Hatak, it'll be the same. He knows about the speed rating of one of these ships. Ten times the speed of light. Well, that's fast, but again, it's still not what you'd expect from a major spacefaring civilization. I mean, if it's going to take ten times the speed of light, the Earth is under no immediate threat. To be fair, the writers play with this, and that works very nicely. As Sam points out, she knew the location of the world they were gating to. You've got to explain it to Jack that, yeah, they're on a ship, but the ship was around a planet, otherwise they couldn't have gated there. Ten times the speed of light, it would take at least a year to get there. So they're talking ten light years away. So still in the immediate vicinity of Earth. Neighbours. We're not talking about half the galaxy away. With a good telescope, you can see this planet and see this world. <laughs> That's worrying. It's almost as if, why didn't they find the Earth in their standard patrols? And I think they should have placed this world a lot further away to make it work. Or then, although I'd probably, this is just nitpicking. But isn't that the point, eh? <laughs> a voice echoes throughout the ship. We don't get a translation. The people in the landing bay walk off screen. Thankfully for SG-1, none of them take that exit where they are. We see a sarcophagus moving through the corridors. Glimpse of some presetters, more Jafar. Of course, SG-1 are going to follow them covertly, see what's going on. Because why wouldn't you? Why not go in the other direction? <laughs> Sabotage ship. We're back in the gate room. We can see a lot of extras all doled up in various outfits. Priests and presetters, Jafar warriors. Other loyal servants of Apophis. Credit to the two Jafar who walk up the steps to stand guard. As we know from Christopher, visibility when you're wearing that helmet is drastically reduced. And seeing where your footsteps are is difficult. Makes you wonder if that was two or three takes to get that right. And the giant Malteser clears up and there's Apophis looking upon his people. Interesting that Apophis... He's not with this attack fleet. He's elsewhere. He's going to join them when they come out of the shadows, out of the darkness. Which means a rendezvous of some sort. And he's left his son, Chlorel, in charge. Who turns out to be Skara? Of course, why not? <laughs> it's an interesting thought though, isn't it? Why do system lords have children? They're not the biological children. As we come to learn, the procreation amongst the Jafar is done through a queen. Maybe particular males have some input into that. So batch of uh, symbiotes are tied to one particular host and queen. 
it's interesting why they would want offspring. I'm not sure we ever really learn the answer to that. Although we do learn quite often that the offspring, sooner or later, always try to kill their parents. <laughs> because after all, the world are all in it for power and influence. And the easiest way to get power is to knock off somebody with it. And the easiest person closest to you is family. Can't help but Apophis is playing with fire here. SG-1 remain behind as everybody leaves the room. Fortunately for them, nobody spots them hiding amongst the crates at the back. <laughs> they are lucky, very lucky. Jack isn't very pleased about the fate of Skara. Uh, not surprising, really. Carter questions whether Jack is thinking straight, behaving a little too emotional after he says he wants to capture the lad. Then again, he has a point, you know, as an intelligence resource and the advantage they've got by being on the ship undetected, there is an opportunity to capture a system lord. Backup plan is C4 dotted around the ship. As we know, they also, as a timer, seems like a plan. As we know, though, these plans really go according had planned. Let's find out what happens. Jack and Tilk return to the sarcophagus room where Clarell is standing in front of the control panel. Slight smile on his face. All is going well. They launch their attack. They take out the Jafar guards, take some return fire. Clarell is gearing up for his ribbon device. Tilk manages to grab him, disarm him. <laughs> Clarell is, well, not that impressed. You all die for this. Pretty much what every Gawald says when they encounter SG-1. Jack and Tilk then proceed to lock the doors and burn out the control panels. Can't help but feel that they've locked themselves in with a Gawald system lord. Maybe not the brightest idea. Meanwhile, once again, Sam and Daniel duck behind strategically placed hidden areas as the uh, patrol walks by, given away by the noise of their armour. That's never going to get old. They plant C4 on one of the death gliders on the principle that they're using some sort of fuel, so if they manage to blow up one, fuel lines, fuel cells will explode and go down the whole chain of fighters. This is reasonable. Jack continues to face down Clorel, who is simply not impressed. Not impressed with Jack at all. Ah, this is where Clorel says, Apophis is my father. He seeded the queen. So the queen must require some sort of priming before she gives birth to a few thousand offspring. It's my sidearm, I swear. That's interesting. I'm not sure they follow up too heavily on that piece of the Guo narrative. If that was the case, you'd really have each system lord having their own dedicated armies. And if he's a son, then pretty much the other thousand symbiotes are going to be his sons as well. <laughs> Let's not worry too much about that. Let's just enjoy Jack and Carell daggers at each other. Nice bit of dialogue, nice bit of acting. Jack, being Jack, finally loses his temper. He confirms with Tilk that one blast from the Zack gun will not kill Clarell. It'll just hurt a lot. He tells Tilk to release him. Tilk does reluctantly, and Jack fires. Jack, when he makes his mind up to do something, he does it. Clarell falls to the floor in agony, and that's when Skara reappears. The accent's back. He's shrieking for Danielle and Share, O'Neill. He's concerned that Jack isn't his friend anymore. Apologises for what he's about to do to... Well, that's, that's one of the things. We don't learn exactly what he's about to do because 
Clarell regains control as the Jafar burst in and hold everybody at gunpoint. And at this point, Jack and Tilk got to surrender. It wasn't a really very well thought out plan. Hey, if it was just me, I'd agree. Clarell stands up, grabs the Zat gun and basically shoots Jack in the back of the head. Little bit of payback. Stops the Jafar from shooting them both. Intent to hand them both over to his father. Like a good little boy. Meanwhile, Sam is slapping C4 on the gate, arguing that the Naquada that's embedded in it amplified the explosion. Uh, it's probably right, this will take out the ship. Just a question of when and where exactly they're going to be. At this point, I don't think they're looking at a way out. This is turning, rapidly turning into a suicide mission. Apophis is rather pleased about his gift from Clarell. He orders that Tilk be executed immediately. A removal of his printer. It's basically the priest is going to use that fancy looking knife to take out his symbiote. Jack, well, that's entirely up to Clarell how he kills Jack. But do it quickly. They've got a rendezvous. They're on a schedule. And in comes the priest. They do take great pride in the ceremony of these things. It's all how things look. The bureaucracy of even executions. I suppose that's how they control the majority of their people. Every aspect of life has a procedure, a way to do things which must be obeyed. And at the last second, Clorel intervenes, orders the prisoners to be taken to the Peltac. I'm not sure what that says about Jack's emotionally derived request to Clorel Scara. It implies that there is a little bit more of Scara in Clorel than Clorel would really like. There's no reason he should agree to do what Jack requests, unless Clarell himself sees some way to gain benefit from that, which is possible, as we've said. The uh, offspring of the ward are often responsible for the ward's death. Daniel seems a little surprised that Sam is so eager to go after them. Of course, he argues the fact that they are kind of the last line of defence. This attack has got to be brought down. They can't risk the earth, even for two of their friends. Sam argues the point that, you know, equipping the C4 with a timer set for 24 hours will give them the backup they need. And of course, at this point, she thinks she's got 24 hours. At 10 times the speed of light, travelling 10 light years, plenty of time. How's that working out for you? But, as we know, she's mistaken. Right, we go back to the, I suppose you could call it the control room, not the sarcophagus room, since Helm is in that room as well. And this may explain why Clarell did what he did. He wanted to rub it in a bit. So, Jack, you want to go back to your homeworld? I can make that happen. And that's why he's taken him to the control room with a nice big open window where he can see his Earth, see his home, as the ship comes out of FTL. Which only warns him about a fraction of a second too late as Jack is once again thrown forward as the ship decelerates. I've got to admit, I do like this little twist. We were originally intended to believe that Clarell was having a little soft moment as he spared Tilk's life. But then when he grinds it into Jack that we are in the solar system, there's Saturn, we're heading towards Earth. You will live long enough to see your world burn. That is nasty. That is go old system lord level nasty. Very nicely done by the writers. Right, we jump back to Cheyenne Mountain, and Walter is talking to the General, with news that the deep space radar tracking facilities have picked up large objects entering the solar system around the orbit of Saturn. General Hammond actually points out that 
Daniel is probably fortunate he won't get to live through seeing the earth burnt for a second time. Little does he know. Yes, I know the feeling. Indeed. Of course, straight to the bat phone, or at least the direct line to the president. Orders have been passed down that Stargate Command is going to be the hub of the Earth's defence, which makes a lot of sense. The general is in his place now, giving orders, getting things ready, encrypted communications with all air bases. He's going to be as ready as he can be to defend the Earth. Meanwhile, back on the Hatak, Sam and Daniel again are creeping around. A lot of Jafar passing by, go straight to the flight bays and starboarding the death gliders. They haven't figured out now, they're a lot closer to Earth than they believe. Sam approaches the control room, lays down smoke, draws out some of the Jafar. Her and Daniel open up on him, kill them down and then enter. Hell of a firefight, Jack gets involved. I can't swear it, but I'm pretty sure Mike Dopu is one of the Jafar guards. I'll have to look in IMDB to check that out. Although he might be just an uncredited stuntman at this time. All hell breaks loose. Carell, 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 <laughs> Clarell grabs Daniel, who's running around, shooting off two 9mm with gay abandon. And he whips out the wrist device and he starts zapping Daniel's brain. Not for the first time, her system lord starts to scramble his melon. Jack has his gun on Clarell. Shouting, screaming, Scara stop. Jack's got to make a decision, and he does. He fires. He shoots Clarell. Centre mass. No fancy shooting. He drops the guy, as he's trained to do. Daniel is a little worse for wear. He's <laughs> not quite there at the moment. Scara is back, Clarell having released him. He recognises Jack, and then he, he fades away. Until looks to his right, obviously at the view screen, to see something very worrying indeed. Tilk calls Jack over. Jack needs a minute. Tilk says, <laughs> can't give you a minute. As we see the earth and the moon off in the distance slowly getting bigger. Daniel points out what happened to the year. Obviously Sam says, well, it's, the ship is obviously a lot faster than we expected. Uh, no kidding. And the camera pulls back as we see SG-1 looking through the view screen. We leave the attack. Camera continues to pull back. And as the camera swivels around we see the second attack in formation so that must be Apophis on his ship two attack vessels dozens of death gliders yep we're in trouble it's not magic teal they just want you to think that and that was within the serpent's grasp the season one finale of stargate sg1 the story continues in season two uh, they've left us on a, a pretty decent cliffhanger i've got to say looking forward to that Hopefully I'll have a guest. Things have been a bit hectic at the moment. That's why I'm doing the last two episodes by myself. I'm not sure if this format works so well for the listeners. If you've got any thoughts, feel free to let me know. If you do want to get in touch with us, you can email me at stargatearchives at gmail.com. We are on Facebook and Google+. If you want to contact us on Twitter, I'm using the old at the gatecast handle with thousands of followers on there. For some reason, find us interesting. <laughs> That's a great community, by the way. If you're if you're not on Twitter and you're Stargate fan, you should do. Even if you only use it for Stargate, it's a great little resource for the fan base. You'll find us on iTunes, of course. Uh, ratings and reviews will be most welcome. If you want to join me on the show, again, feel free. I'd love to have some more guests. I believe I'm going to do one more episode of Stargate SG1 on the normal schedule, which is a season one finale, the conclusion to this storyline. And then we're going to start jumping around all over the franchise. Whatever the guest wants to talk about, that's what we'll talk about. So uh, that should be fun. 
Until then, take care. Bye-bye.